Okay, <clears throat> I haven't done this in a while. <laughs> we'll, let, we'll let you know if you don't do it right. I'm sure you will. Uh, tonight we're kind of changing gears. We, uh, we're moving off of the uh, doctrines of, uh, that have to do with soteriology or salvation, redemption, and moving into uh, the church, talking about the church, the nature of the church specifically here tonight. And um, there's a lot to be said about it. There are a lot of uh, uh, a lot of misinformation about the church. A lot of uh, things that we've uh, learned uh, incorrectly or thought incorrectly through the years. And so, I think we've had enough teaching here in our church to where you're not going to hear anything uh, radically different than what you've been accustomed to, um, as far as uh, this congregation goes. But uh, but the church would be a lot healthier if it did more in-depth Bible study on exactly what the church is supposed to be and how it's supposed to function. One of the things that has driven me back to school is the desire to, um, to be more, um, to be better, better equipped to help the church understand moving forward into the future um, some of the missteps that we're making currently or have made in the recent past to take ourselves off course and um, I may not have any impact other than hopefully in this congregation but my desire is to uh, drive a stake so deep in the ground in this congregation that you can't ever get away from it even years after I'm dead and gone that this church will still be anchored to the truth that is God's word and be the kind of church that God wants it to be and not be kicked back and forth as uh, Ephesians says by every wind of doctrine and opinion that comes along which is exactly where the modern church is today is that it's so locked into pragmatism that whatever occurs whatever hits the, um, the uh, public eye and maybe gathers a crowd then that becomes the the next greatest best thing in church life because we're all about that kind of end result and it's become very shallow and superficial in many ways so one of my uh, heartburns if you will is as you hear me preach and teach uh, continually is that we continue to look back to the word of God and what God wants us to be uh, how he equips us to be what he's called us to be and not be led astray by all the yammering voices outside in the streets. So as we think about the nature of the church, first question out of the box is, what is the church? How would you define church? Well, a good place to start is the meaning of the, meaning of the word, pulling it out of the ancient Greek language called out ones, ones who are called out. Okay. It's made of two words, ek and kaleo, which, which means called out ones or the ones that are called out. Grudem gives you a kind of a summary statement there. He says that the community, it's the community of all true believers for all time. The community of, of true believers for all time. So this goes back how far? All time. All time. <laughs> Which is? Be more specific, please. Well, yeah, I mean, all the way back to the beginning. The first person that God called out, you know, did he redeem Adam? I don't know. Maybe. Um, Seth. But certainly in the Old Testament, even to what's current. I was waiting. I was baiting you because I thought somebody would say, well, since Pentecost, since the birth of the church, right? Well, no, that's... Uh, that's the, uh, the beginning of this, this fruition or this fulfillment of 
God's people, but God began calling people out in the Old Testament, certainly, didn't he? I mean, you go back to right before, uh, maybe it was right after Seth, Genesis 4, is that where it says, and, the, and people began to call on the name of the Lord? Uh, so, if this is the definition of church, then church has been taking place for a long time. What we're thinking about is post-crucifixion, resurrection of Christ, and the coming of, of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, yes, has brought us into, should we say, a dawning of the kingdom of God, a fulfillment of what God has set out to do from the very beginning. <clears throat> Ephesians 1, and 23 says, And he put all things under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Matthew 16.18, Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All who are saved by faith in the finished work of Christ comprise the church. From the very first person God called out until he finally completes it at the close of this age. So it is a continuation of God's covenant going back into the Old Testament whereby he calls a people to himself. Uh, who's got Exodus 19, 5, and 6? I do. All right. Read that for us, J.C. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession along all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Okay, you shall be my treasured possession. Or you shall be a holy people to me, and I will be your God. Okay? It's God's covenant, God's promise, God's dealings with man. Who's got 1 Peter uh, 2, 9 and 10? Okay? Now listen carefully. are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You've got the Exodus passage we just read. You know that takes place post- Deliverance out of Egypt, Egyptian bondage, right? Mm -hmm. And prior to chapter 20, which is what? Ten Commandments, which is? The law. The law. This, the chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law, those are the conditions that God puts upon his people. He says, I have called you out. You're going to be to me my special treasured people, my holy nation, a holy priesthood, ultimately to bless all of his creation, to, to expand and extend my kingdom to all people throughout all creation. Now, with that, he said, go stipulations and conditions, not so that you'll be my people, but because you are my people, this is what I expect of you. You'll be a holy nation. So, hence, you've got, what does that look like? He gives them the law. This is what it looks like to be a holy people. This is what it looks like to be a righteous people that, that are making my name known, my name great among the nations. So he tells them that right up front. The Old Testament is constantly rehearsing the covenant. You know, we talk about covenants in the Old Testament, and there are covenants, but they all fold into each other. God's working toward the same, same end of purpose here. Then you come over to what... Scott just read in Peter. When does that take place? A long time after Exodus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, close to a generation after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Peter's writing this, and didn't it sound very much like the same thing? Yeah, I mean, he's quoting from the Old Testament here. He's quoting, but he's not talking to the same crowd that Moses was talking to, was he? Who's he talking to in Peter? talking to New Testament believers. He's talking to the church, you know, over here. So, same thing. God's doing the same thing. These are his called out people in the Old Testament. He's dealing with his called out people here, and he's saying, I've got the same purpose in mind. I'm going in the same direction. I'm headed to the same destiny. Somebody have Deuteronomy 4.10? How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Harold, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on earth, and that they may teach their children so. Now if you went back, this word gather that, that James mentioned, gather the people, this word, if you went back to the Greek Bible, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, not just of the New Testament, but the Old Testament as well, you'd find that this word here is guess. It's actually got um, Z-O on the end of it. But that's the form of the word that's used here. This word gather is the same word. It's set assembly apart. Set the assembly apart. So clearly, the language in the Old Testament is pointing to the same conclusion that we find in the New Testament. They're not separate, but they're working together toward the same end and the same purpose. It means to summon an assembly. Um, and the, the complement to the word in the New Testament, obviously, is ecclesia. Stephen speaks of the people of Israel in the wilderness as the church as well. So Acts 7, 38. <clears throat> This is he who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. So this word congregation that he's used, again, same word, ecclesia. Stephen's talking about referring back, pointing back to the Old Testament people of God, the people set apart for God. Same language being used back and forth. So there, there is no differentiation here except that one is being called out and formed prior to Christ dying and being resurrected and the other is happening afterwards. But they're, they're saved the same way. They're called out to the same body on both sides of that great central part of all history. Does that make sense? the church <clears throat> you'll find this in um, in other places in first Kings chapter 8 there's a uh, a scene that's taking place there where Solomon is dedicating the temple that he made that he built you know David wanted to build it God said you're not going to build it you got blood on your hands so you can't build my temple so he said I'm going to let Solomon do it David gathered the materials Solomon built it, it took him seven years when he gets done for the seventh year, he, uh, he, he sets up for them to dedicate the temple to God. This, I mean, you had God making appearances to his people all through the Old Testament. He comes as, um, um, you've got the cloud in the wilderness leading the people, revealing God's glory, his presence among his people. You've got um, Exodus chapter I think it's in Exodus chapter 20, 21. No, it's it's 19 something. God says to Israel, no, it's 14 something. He says to Israel, he says, I'm going to uh, put manna on the ground to feed you every morning so that you will know my glory. You'll know my presence. You'll know I'm with you. So he's revealing himself to his people all through there, through the cloud, the manna, water from the rock, 
um, you know, changing the, the bitter water to sweet water, uh, leveling the walls of Jericho. God is showing his glory and, and also because of sin, he has to be kept aloof or afar from them because his glory would devastate them. Hence his conversation with Moses, right? Show me your glory, you can't handle it, you'll die. So he gets uh, to the tabernacle. After he gives the law, he says, I'm going to set this thing up, this tabernacle, this tent, that will symbolize my presence with the people, where we can meet a place of worship, where we can meet one another. But the tabernacle was more about covering, concealing the glory of God and protecting the people but still symbolically representing his presence to the people, right? The temple becomes the more permanent version of the tabernacle. So Solomon builds that, and, and it says that when they dedicated the temple, that they sacrificed animals that they couldn't count. They were unable to count all the animals that were sacrificed. They brought the ark from, uh, what's that guy's name that had it in his house? No, let's see. David brought it up to the, to the old city, and then they moved it to the Temple Mount. So it wasn't very far from the old city where David's palace was that they moved it up on the mount into the new temple that they fashioned. But it was quite the ordeal, and an incredible worship breaks out. And the only thing that was put in the temple was in the inner sanctuary. They put the ark and all that the ark had were the two tablets with the covenant, with the terms of the covenant on it, the terms of the contract. God said, I'll be your God, you be my people, and here are the terms of our agreement. And this shall be the central, the central aspect of, of our relationship. And it needs to be central to your lives and everything else. So he put it in the center of the temple. Then something interesting happens. Once they got everything situated, the scripture says there in 1 Kings that the priests left the temple, and when they did, the glory of God filled the temple. Now, you have to look past the, the building that is the temple and see that more as a foreshadowing of the church to come in the New Testament. Okay? The fulfillment of the, the people of God in the New Testament. The temple is more representative, it's more symbolic, I guess, of the people there that were gathered that were on good terms with God, they were worshiping God, they were approaching Him as He had stipulated that they approach Him through blood sacrifice. And, and so they, when they did those things, God came among them and revealed Himself to them in a great way. Span forward, you get into the New Testament, you've got the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost and filling not a temple made with hands, but what? people, the believers. They become the, the temples. Paul said to the Corinthians multiple times, you are the temple of God. You know, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you get into 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and he says it again. We are the temple, he says, the temple of the living God. So there's no longer a need for this but the Spirit of God lives within His people, the people that He set apart. You keep moving forward, you get to Revelation 21 and 22, and what happens there? You've got a new creation, right? You've got the new creation, you've got a new, uh, a new city, New Jerusalem, it says, coming down out of heaven. But you know what it says there? It says, there is no temple in the new city. Why? There is no need for a temple. God, God the Father and the Lamb, God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. And there's no need for God's holiness to be concealed from fallen man because now we've been made righteous, right? And so we dwell with Him in the fullness of His presence forever. This is what God's doing. This is His work that He's calling out people for Himself to be His people to be perfect as he wants them to be perfect, and, and he's the one that's going to complete it. Begun all the way over here, takes it to the finish and to its climax. We 
often have this idea in our minds that the church is something that's here for now, you know, that it's something we do. Uh, in fact, there's some that say we live in what they call the church age. Well, it's always been the church age. If you think of the church as a people called out by God unto himself, which is what it is. And it always will be. How can the church be visible and invisible simultaneously? It is invisible because we cannot see the true spiritual condition of the heart. It's a spiritual entity, if we can use that word, organism. It is, it is visible as it includes all who profess Christ, who profess faith in Him. Every time we gather together, whether it's worship, whether it's just this group here, this is the, the church being made visible, right? When we are ministering outside the walls of the church, it's the church being made visible. When, we, when the Spirit of God is filling us and, and revealing His presence in us, no matter where we are or what we're doing, it is the church being made visible. On Tuesday, we, some of us were over at the, at the middle school at lunch with those kids over there, you know, why were we there? We're there because of what Christ has done in us. We're there to make, to make the church visible, to be visible in the community, in a lost community, in a dark community, among a darkened people, lost people. So it is both visible and invisible. I'm going to have to really move fast, aren't I? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> 1 John 2, 19. Who has that one? Okay. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, and they might be made manifest that none of them were of, were of us. Usually the way that we judge a church or we think we see the church is, you know, we make the mistake of substituting a building, you know, that the building is the church, and we know that's not true. But when the church gathers on any given Sunday or any other time it gathers, we know that there are always people there that probably aren't representative of the true church. There are people, just like John mentions there, that were gathering and meeting with the body of Christ at that time, that at some point in time, because of doctrinal issues or for some reason, suddenly decided that they didn't feel like they wanted to be a part of it, and they left. And he said they were never really part of us, even though they may have physically been showing up, but they never were really part of the body of Christ. Uh, John six sixty six. Said after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with them. Same thing. You had people that were flocking to Jesus, but they came for lots of different reasons. Some of them came because he was doing miracles and they were enthralled <coughs> by that. Some of them were hoping he would do something for them. Some of them, like maybe. You know, we saw James and John were asking to sit on his right and left and have positions in his kingdom when he came in. So they all had different agendas. And when things got going a little difficult, when Jesus, you know, got down to the, the, the crux with, with some strong teaching, you'd see people peel off. They'd fade away and decide not to follow him anymore because they weren't really with him. Judas, Judas followed him around for three years or more and appeared on the surface to be one of them, but in fact he never was, was he? Demas, Paul said Demas uh, had been an apparent follower for a season, but ultimately he departed, that he loved the world more than he loved the Lord. Acts 20, 29, and 30 uh, the Apostle Paul talking to the, the elders from Ephesus told them, he's, he's uh, grilling them, really. He says, you know, I'm going away. He'd been there for three years among them. And he said, I'm leaving, but know for sure there are going to be those that come in, wolves come in, in 
sheep's clothing. They're going to come in and look like sheep. They're going to make you think they're sheep, but in fact, they're predators. They're coming in to work against the things of God. So we can't go by just what we see always. We need to understand that the kingdom of God, the church of God, is always both visible and invisible. The church is both universal or Catholic, and it is, that's a little c, and it is, uh, it's Catholic, it's universal, and it's local, okay? So there are people that I know in my heart of hearts that are truly a part of the true church that meet, you know, 10, 11 hours before we do on Sunday over in India. And they worship in a different tongue, and they sing different kinds of songs, and they, you know, but they still go to the Word of God, and they still worship the same God that we're worshiping, and they're part of the body of Christ, just like we are. But we have all this space between us. There have been great people of faith going back for centuries, you know, whether it be Abraham or Moses or David or Paul or Peter or Calvin, or Luther, or whomever, all through the, this timeline of God calling people out that are part of the church, people that we've never met. Maybe we've read something about them, we've read something they've written, uh, how God's used them, but they're still part of the body of Christ, just like you and I are. So the church is both universal and it's local. We know that we have uh, a certain local assembly here and you know we live in a metropolitan area and we live in a different time than than say paul did where there may have been more of a uh, a movement toward having you know because they didn't go out and build structures to meet in together where they gathered in homes so they might have had several gatherings across a city but basically one church to a city where they interacted with one another uh, in that way here, we're a little bit more fragmented than that, aren't we? We've got churches scattered all over. You've got churches, you go down the street, probably don't have to drive very far and run across a church, right? Um, oh, there's not that many right close to us, are there? We're kind of in a unique area right here. Um, in fact, I don't think it's uh, probably a... Um, the elders talked about this uh, several months ago, about... You know, looking at our building and the age of it and the needs that it has and things like that and, and the uh, value of the property and stuff, did we think we'd be better off selling and relocating and building something that was more efficient and, um, more, and newer and all those kind of things? And, uh, and, you know, we finally came to the conclusion that, you know, if we walk out of this place right here, it closes up and there's nobody else coming in as far as the church goes because they won't have the opportunity, the access. We have something here that should be hard for us to give up and that is the opportunity to minister in this area as challenging as it may be moving forward to do that. Uh, some metaphors for the church. All right, I want to move through these pretty quickly so if you're uh, beginning with 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, and Ephesians 3, 14, and Ephesians 3, 32, and 2 Corinthians 11, 2. Get those ready, and we'll start going through them. Metaphors in the Bible for the church. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Ephesians 3.14 For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This, the language that's used in the Bible toward God's people, called out ones. I mean, what did he tell Abraham? I'm going to make you a great nation, a great people, a great family, essentially. The covenants in the Old Testament had familial connections you know Abraham was promised a great growing family uh, Jacob had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel to David he promised to have a uh, an eternal house a dynasty a family and uh, and you get into the New Testament and you find this language you know we call God father we call each other brother or sister and and that's coming from the New Testament so there's a family metaphor in the 
uh, in the Bible for the people of God. I think we've talked about this on numerous occasions that the body of Christ, the local assembly of the church, really is just a larger, it's a, it's a family unit written large. It's many families coming together, but still being a family unit. And so the, the leadership and the way that a family works inside your home is the way that we think the church ought to function as best it can in a larger way. That's why when you find qualifications for leaders in the, in the New Testament, and it talks about their character, and it talks about their home life, and it talks about uh, you know, how they lead their home. Why? Because what they've been doing at home is what they're going to be doing for the church on a larger scale. They're going to be helping multiple families do what they've been helping their family. So if they don't have it together inside the walls of their own home, they can't help the church get it together, can they? So the qualifications are about men who have demonstrated that they are, they are spiritual leaders at home, that they lead their families in a spiritual direction to follow the Lord, and that when they move into a role of leadership in the church, that they'll, take, they'll bring that success, they'll bring that, that commitment and that passion to a larger role and impact more families in the same way. Ephesians 5.32 this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. 2 Corinthians 11.2 For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. So we have the, the imagery of a bride, the bride of Christ. The church is called the bride of Christ in, in the New Testament on countless occasions and we we have that same uh, imagery even at the very end at the eschatological appearance of the church at the very close of the age in revelation it's a wedding feast that we see it's it's the bride of christ and the bridegroom who is christ uh, united in marriage that's a pretty special relationship god has given us the family unit he's given us marriage what to teach us we're god's not getting his tips from us you know, he's not saying, you know what, they have families down there. They get married, so let's use that imagery to teach them how we want them to respond to us and how this relationship between Christ and his church is going to fit. No, it's the other way around. He said, we have this relationship that we're working out, so let's give them a gift called marriage. Let's give them a gift called family so that they have these built-in pictures so that they can understand the love and the relationship aspect of this better. They're not going to be able to understand it perfectly, but this will give them some inside uh, looks at it. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him beareth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Okay, we have the, um, the imagery of, of branches on a vine. Christ being the vine, we're the branches. And we produce fruit, but the fruit is produced through us as, as the sap, the Holy Spirit, makes its way through us and presses out in the end. The branches don't produce fruit. They're just, they're just the conduit from the vine, the roots in the vine, for the, for the sap, for the Spirit to move through and to push the buds forth and to produce the fruit. And so that's what we are in Christ. This is the imagery of the church. Romans 11, 17 to 24. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive roots, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who sell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature, were grafted onto a cultivated olive tree, 
not much more readily will these the natural branches be grafted onto their own olive tree. Yeah, I mean, there's there's an interesting thing, and I, I think I got my facts straight on this, Bill. You might correct me or James, some of you guys that have been over there and listened to Yoni teach, but the, the olive tree in Israel is an interesting thing. It, you know, you don't uh, you don't set it out like we would trees here. You know, you go out and buy an apple tree or a peach tree, and you take it in your backyard, you dig a hole and set it down. You, you take these trees over there, these trunks that, you know, they've been there a long time. Well, they've already got a root system and everything built, but they may get diseased up here in, in the actual part of the tree. And so what they do is they, they may prune that off and clean that off, and then they'll bring a healthy a tree, a portion of a healthy tree, branches, and they'll graft it. They'll, they'll tie it and wrap it around so that it grows into and it actually attaches itself and becomes a part of this root system already built. And this is the imagery that Christ is giving us of what he's doing, you know, that he, Israel was that first shoot that came up and has become diseased, has in many ways has lost its way. Not all of Israel, some of it's still healthy, but he's grafting in Gentiles and he's going to come back and graft in more Jews, you know. So all people, all nations and tribes are being grafted in to this vine, to this root system. This is what he's talking about. So the olive tree becomes a great picture of the people of God in the Bible. And so when you see it, you see olive trees, olive oil, things of that nature, that ought to be, you know, a red flag. You go, whoops, something's going on here. And it probably has something to do with the body of Christ. So check it out and read carefully. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Okay, so he tells you point blank there, gives you two metaphors in his last two statements. You are God's field, and you are God's building. You know, he's, uh, this, is a, this is a picture and imagery of the body of Christ, like a field, that he's working for a crop, a harvest. The fields are white unto harvest bring people in. The, the building is uh, something he uses here as an imagery for the body of Christ. 1 Peter 2.5 1 Peter 2.5 You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And 2 Corinthians 6.16 <clears throat> What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So he's, he's using terms like a new temple, a living temple of God. He's using terms, uh, a new group of priests, a new priesthood. And um, what was the other one? And a house of God. No, you didn't read Hebrews, did you? Uh, who's got Hebrews 3.6? Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if we hold on to our courage and hope of which we boast. Okay, so the body of Christ is God's house, uh, not a physical house, but a house made of living parts, living stones. And we're familiar with the other one that the Bible uses, which is what? How else does he com communicate? Right. The body. The body, we know that one. I mean, Paul uses that one a lot, especially with the spiritual gifts uh, teaching in, in Romans 12 and, and 1 Corinthians 12. He's talking about the body being a picture of the body of Christ, that you know, all these different parts. And uh, you know, my wife, being the nurse that she is, she's constantly, you know, I've, I've told you how much I get enchanted by the stars and the galaxies and all that stuff amazes me. Well, she told me the other day, she says, I know that that gets your, gets your fire burning, but she said, I'll tell you what does it for me is the human body. Well, I said, because you spent all your college years studying the human body, you know, not, most of us don't have that benefit. But she sees the complexity and the brilliance and, 
and the mystery in the human body and the way it functions. And we all can relate to that. We understand um, some of it we look at and we're a little bit disenchanted with at times, you know, we're, when our short-term memory is not working like it should. Or, but the way that the body works and the fact that it works the way that it does, you know, is a, a brilliant illustration of how God does. So much of it is invisible to our eye, even though it's there. And sometimes we have maladies going on inside that we don't recognize. So there's a lot of similarities there with the body that can tell us, show us a lot about the church as well. All right. Uh, the church in Israel. This is the one you've all been waiting for. There are um, two or three different ways to that people view this. I don't want to get bogged down in it too much because it's a, uh, a lost cause. We can't settle it, in other words. Something you probably ought to know a little something about. Uh, dispensationalism. Um, this guy that started this view of Scripture. Um, his first name is John. John? John. John Darby. Um, dispensationalism has taken such a hold in the United States, and it started in uh, Scotland. He Scot he's, I know he's British. Uh, so at, at the very least, it started in Britain with Darby. And in the 1800s, he lived from 1800 to like 1888 or something. So it was in the mid-1800s, mid-19th century, that dispensationalism appeared. It really wasn't on the, the map until then. He came to the United States and visited over here. He, he visited primarily, uh, there was a Presbyterian church, and this is where it really gets weird, a Presbyterian church in St. Louis, and the guy's name was James Brooks, who was the pastor there, and he really became uh, enchanted with dispensationalism, and so it kind of became a hub for dispensational thought. Now, basically, dispensational thought uh, sees two tracks here. Israel, Israel, and the church. That, um, and there's a great deal of focus on the um, tangible, physical prophecies and things that go along with Israel. And, uh, you know, the land and and those kind of things that God promised. And, and that uh, this gets into, you know, your eschatology where you've got the, the rapture, um, you've got the millennial perspective, a thousand-year reign at the end where Israel's going to be restored to, you know, the great nation on the face of the earth, and the church is going to be raptured out of here during... Uh, before that happens, you got the tribulation and all those kind of things working. So that's where a lot of that comes from. All right? Then you've got some guys that have been dissatisfied with that. Most, a lot of people have pulled away from dispensationalism as, as you see it there. They've realized that a lot of it's kind of contrived. Um, and it's a late arrival to the game, if, if that makes sense. By coming in, eight, in the mid-1800s, a lot of church history under the belt before it appears to totally reinvent this prism of how to see scripture and to see what God's doing across the, the, the time frames here. Progressive dispensationalism. I don't like either one of them. The terms, I mean. You know, I used to be, uh, because this is the way we were taught. I went to a seminary years ago that was uh, head over heels into dispensationalism, and I didn't know any better. Uh, but, you know, as you begin to read Scripture and you begin to work through these things, I've shared this with you before, when you start preaching through the Bible verse by verse, then you start finding out, you know what, this doesn't fit. Here's a part here that just doesn't fit. You know, I can't, I don't have a category for it. And, and you can turn a blind eye to it and say, well, I'm just not going to preach or deal with those passages. Or you can dig in and start trying to figure out why it doesn't fit. 
And uh, progressive dispensationalism is a little bit more sane. They, they believe that the Israel and the church are heading in the same direction, going got the same destiny, on the same track, uh, in essence. They do believe that there's something working here at the end where there's going to be some physical promises realized for Israel toward the end of this. And, and to be honest with you, I'm not sure on this one. And Grudem even points this out. I thought it's, I marked it down because I thought it was a, uh, it was a great statement to make. Um, it was on page 368, and this is what he said. Questions about the exact way in which biblical prophecies about the future will be fulfilled are, in the nature of the case, difficult to decide with certainty. And it is wise to have some tentativeness in our conclusions on these matters. And I, I think that's, that's wisdom. Because God could have done things in a lot simpler fashion, you know, rather than using a lot of uh, analogy and symbolism to accomplish what he was doing. Um, the fact that there's so much emphasis paid to promises and prophecies to the physical Israel. Um, What's God going to do with Israel at the end? I don't know. You, you go into Romans 9, 10, and 11, and there's a lot of things there that, uh, you know, when God talks about um, all Israel will be saved, and it, it's just hard to fit it into this category and say that, that there's nothing there for me. I don't know what it is. I have no clue. I'll just be honest with you. And I'm not sure that it's critically important for us to know that. It's obviously in the Bible. It's got some importance, but it's not going to make a difference in whether you have a relationship with Christ or not, you know, unless you're making more of it than you should. The biggest problem I have with dispensationalism is that it becomes a tail that wags the dog of all of Scripture, and that's problematic. Um, progressive dispensationalism, I think, has tried to find middle footing where there's a couple of things from dispensationalism that there have some merit and, and then tie it more to the traditional Reformed perspective on viewing biblical theology uh, as such. And so I wouldn't put myself in this camp, but I would probably, uh, I, I would be in this next category, but I would have some... Um, compassion for some of the reasoning behind the progressive dispensationalist view. Does that make sense? I'm a little bit compassionate toward them. I have a little bit um, on that front. The, the more, you know, and what our Baptist roots come out of is the tradition, is the reformed tradition, okay? Um, certainly not this, but this has infiltrated the churches in America to the point that you know, it's everywhere. Um, we got full-blown uh, seminaries and everything else that that, as, that uh, ascribe to this position. As I mentioned, I ended up in one, and um, it's taken a long time to get some of that stuff worked out in my mind and heart, and a lot of wasted time and space there. And I think we can make an argument that we've suffered for it too. That you have? No, we as oh. capital C. <laughs> yes. We have, but that's always the case. Look at look at what happened, you know, before the Reformation. You know what was going on in the church with Roman Catholicism had had lost, you know, the the mission of God at heart and had become self self absorbed, uh, so that it wasn't interested in uh, people. So I think that's a natural bent for men is to abuse what God has given us, and so it's easy very easy for the body of Christ to get off the rails. That's why it's so important. What we're doing this year with this doctrinal study is so important, and it's not something that we'll get to the end of it and say, okay, we never have to do it again. Yes, we do, because these things go around. They take on different forms. Satan comes back with a new line. You know, it's the same old lie, but he's got a new line uh, and, and gets us off track, and, and it worms its way back in. Persuasive people have ways of leading people uh, down the wrong path. And so we have to continue to go back to the scripture and find out what does God say and why did he say it. 
All right, I want to finish this up before we go. Um, key passages that support the church as the new Israel. And I'm not even sure I like that. There's, there's uh, Michael Horton is a guy that um, teaches in Westminster Seminary out on the West Coast. And he's written some really good books. But he wrote a book on covenant theology. And he uses a term in there that I really like. He calls it um, Israel's fruition. And what he's, what he's referring to there is the New Testament community of believers. So this links us together, okay? that what was going on in the Old Testament with Israel has expanded and grown and has morphed into this new community of believers through what Christ did for us on the cross. And, and so we've become the fulfillment of God's covenant people. What God began over here in the Old Testament, the church of today has become the fulfillment of that. Paul Paul, I think, was his point in 2 Corinthians 6 when he was talking to the Corinthians about, you know, what, what place does, uh, does the, the, the um, think about it, what place do believers have with unbelievers or the temple of God have with idols or things of that nature? And he's painting this picture of that I think can be traced back to like 1 Corinthians. First Kings 8 where the temple was dedicated and he's drawing the similarities there that, that what's happening in the New Testament there is actually a fulfillment of what was going beginning over in the Old Testament. So Israel is the beginning seeds, the beginnings, the beginning vines, the branches, or the, I mean the roots being set down. You get into the New Testament and you've got it f coming to fulfillment, to fruition. A um, couple of chapters, I mean, not a couple of chapters, but a couple of verses, and uh, we'll wrap up. Gee, we just didn't get very far at all. We'll finish this next week. It's too important not to get. Um, why don't I do it this way? Why don't I just stop right there, and we'll take it up from here. How would that work? Question? Questions? All right, you got something to chew on between now and next week, right? I was on, I was on.